I want to lift up some of our um, members here who recently lost a family member. I want to pray that you keep them in prayer for the O'Harris. I want to thank you for the life that um, John lived and that you will comfort them and their family. All praise goes to you, and we love you dearly. Thank you for who you are. In your name we pray again. Amen. Good morning. Today we're going to continue our study of Luke's gospel in chapter 1, and I'll be reading verses 5 through 38. In the days of Herod the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. In the sixth month, 
the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. And at, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Somehow we went from four verses last week to 33 verses this week. Sorry about that. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name's Tripp, and uh, it's really my privilege to be here with you. Deep Run has become uh, very dear to our hearts, uh, the Beans family's hearts, and um, Brian and Becky have been dear friends for a long time, so it's, it's, I'm just excited that I can be part of giving them a well-deserved break. If you weren't here last week, I'm in the second week of a series I'm actually working on for students this fall, but you get to help me get ready. And we're calling this series, This Really Happened. And the goal of this series is to give us reassurance in our faith in Jesus, or maybe to encourage us to consider faith in Jesus for the first time. And, and that's actually the goal of Luke, like we talked about last week, that last line in the fourth verse just talks about being certain of the things that you've been taught. Everything that Luke is compiling here, he's doing so that you, Christians, so that you, person who is considering Jesus, could have some certainty. In 1991, <clears throat> a little bit of a shift there, a little whiplash. Uh, 1991, Saturday Night Live, added a bit to the repertoire that became very popular. I was in high school, <clears throat> and I remember being with my friends, and the, the line, deep thoughts, became very popular. Maybe some of you remember. The bit was called Deep Thoughts by Jack Handy, and it was, uh, the voiceover at the beginning was an introduction by Phil Hartman, and then Jack Handy is actually a real guy, and he wrote and read each bit. 
And he would write things like, to me, it is always a good idea to always carry two sacks of something when you walk around. That way, if anybody says, hey, can you give me a hand? You can say, sorry, got these sacks. Another one was, children need encouragement. If a kid gets the answer right, tell him it was a lucky guess. That way, he develops a good lucky feeling. What makes Jack Handy funny is that he looks at the things that we all love, and then he twists the ending. He makes it a little different than what we expected. You expect to carry two sacks so you can give some, somebody something that you have in terms, and be selfless. And turns out his motivation was selfishness, said so that he didn't have to help anybody. You expect to encourage children to make them feel confident and competent. Instead, you just end up making them feel like they're always lucky. In our text this morning, one commentator pointed out that the last 75 verses, yes, there are 80 verses in chapter 1 of Luke, in the last 75 verses of the first chapter of Luke, these are Luke's own deep thoughts. It's important to note, and, and I say to students all the time, the, the Bible isn't written accidentally. The order that's there, the, the, the things that are included, that each author includes in their writings, is not somehow like, I guess I'll include this next. It's tactical, it's, 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 it's intentional. And so when we study it, we have, to, we have to ask the question, why is this here? It's important to note that Luke is the only gospel writer to include Elizabeth and Zechariah. Matthew doesn't, Mark doesn't, John doesn't. It's also interesting to note that only Luke and Matthew include Mary in the birth of Jesus. The other two, it's not that the other two authors are wrong, it's just God was calling them to a different point. They were making a different point than Matthew and Luke. And so we have to ask the question, why are Elizabeth and Zechariah and Mary included in the first chapter of Luke? These details are important, and we discover Luke is reflecting on all the details and stories that he's, he's heard and he's made connections with. It's important for you to know that I'm borrowing heavily from Joel B. Green, He's the author of the New International Commentary on the New Testament, Gospel of Luke, and also on N.T. Wright's commentary, Luke for Everyone. These men have, have more knowledge and ed education than I do, and I actually wasn't even going to, uh, I wasn't going to cover any more of the first two chapters of Luke until I started reading Joel Green's commentary, and then I couldn't help but do these 33 verses. What I want us to consider this morning is that Luke shows us that the story of Jesus is rooted in the Old Testament, specifically the covenant God makes with his people. And we see from the beginning and continuing until now, God is about overcoming sin and brokenness. And as I was writing, um, <clears throat> this was getting tweaked even early this morning. As I was writing, things got a little confusing. Not, not Luke's writing, my writing. Not what Luke said, what I'm trying to say. So I want you to hear, we're going to talk about the redemptive history that is reflected in Luke's writing, and then we're going to explore how Luke thought this would, 
give us certainty in the things that we've been taught. But before we do, let's pray. <coughs> Lord God, your word is brilliant. The way that it's woven together, that it weaves a story, a thread of, of, of relationship with you and redemption of your people from the first chapter to the last. How every single verse points us to Jesus. How everything's tied together is amazing. Would you help us to understand this morning? Would you help us to be certain and affirmed in our faith as we study, as you speak to us? Lord, this will not work if these are my words. This only works if it is your word and your spirit that work in our hearts. And so we ask for those things to be present and to be at work in us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you know this, but God's been at work for a very long time. Really long time. You might say since creation. Actually, you should say since creation. In the first verse of Luke 1, we discover that Luke is putting together his own account of Jesus' life. He says that he's undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So when Luke says that he's compiled a narrative, he's indicating that he's gone around and he's collected these stories. Stories from people who were there. Stories from people who participated. He's taken all these things and he's put them together, and this is the story that he's compiled. And as he's reflecting on the story, Luke picks up on a detail. Luke makes some connections to the Old Testament. Joel Green puts Luke's observation this way, the God who has been working redemptively still, uh, the God who has been working redemptively still is, now and especially in Jesus. The first story that Luke tells to illustrate this is that of Zechariah and Elizabeth, John's parents and Jesus' aunt and uncle. You could imagine Luke interviewing Zechariah. So what, what was Gabriel like? What were your hand motions when you came out? Like, you know, what were you doing to indicate that he had run into an angel? Zechariah is a priest, and when the angel of God informs him that his wife will become pregnant, he's skeptical, to say the least. Elizabeth is unable to have children. <clears throat> they both... Luke acknowledges that they're both very old, which sounds like something a young person would say. Um, I get told a lot I'm very old. Uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth have a son, John. John. It is said that John will turn people toward God, and he will somehow have the power of Elijah, the Old Testament prophet. Luke then moves on to Mary. She isn't married yet and, has the opportunity, and hasn't had the opportunity to be pregnant. And this isn't the same as being unable to have a child, but in some ways, it's more significant. 
She has a son. His name is Jesus. And it says that Jesus will be an eternal king. He will be the, called the son of the Most High God. This is also a very special moment. And you could see Luke kind of reflecting on this and asking the question, where have I heard this story before? Women that shouldn't be having children giving birth. Let's see if we can reflect back to the book of Genesis, chapters 11 through 22 specifically. There was a man named Abraham. He was very old. And there was a, he was married to a woman named Sarah. She was also old and unable to have children. They were both told that they would have a son, and they were both very skeptical about this idea. There was laughter at times, like laughter of, yeah, right. There were all sorts of decisions made to circumvent God's plan, and let's see if we can have a baby, because God doesn't seem to be following his plan. The significance of Abraham and Sarah's son, Isaac, was that he was the evidence that God keeps his promise. Isaac is the, pro, is, is the fulfillment of the promise that Abraham and Sarah were given. God had made a covenant with Abraham and Sarah. A covenant is a binding, legal agreement of relationship. It says that, hey, we're connected. Similar to marriage a binding legal agreement of relationship. When God makes a covenant with Abraham and Sarah, it is to go on to all their descendants. So it isn't just God and Abraham and Sarah have this covenant. It's God and Abraham's, all of Abraham's family have this covenant. And God told Abraham and Sarah that they would be parents of a great nation, that they would have a land, and that these people, this nation, would be a blessing to the other nations. So when Isaac shows up, Abraham and Sarah, they don't have land. <laughs> they actually don't own the land that they've been promised. And they've actually been very little blessing. Well, there's been occasional moments of blessing, but they haven't been a whole lot of blessing to the other nations yet. But Isaac, Isaac is the evidence that the great nation is coming. And if God keeps his promise about the nation, he's going to keep his promise about the land. And if God keeps his promise about the land, he's going to keep his promise about the blessing. God was in the process of creating for himself a people. Throughout the Bible, God kept saying things like, I will be their God, and they will be my people. Do a Google search. It shows up like a ton all through the Old Testament, and then even into the New Testament. Green comments on the text. What we have with the appearance of the Abrahamic material is evidence of Luke's own reading of and reflection on the story of Abraham and reflection on the accounts of the births of John and Jesus in light of that narrative. To the Abrahamic narrative, Luke would have been drawn not only because of the similarities in context, but also by the central import of the covenant. All of that to say, lots of theological words there, all of that to say, Luke picks up on how the birth of John and Jesus are important events that reflect a much bigger redemptive story. 
This doesn't start with Jesus. It starts long before Jesus. In the birth of John and Jesus, Luke sees God's continuing work making people his people and becoming the God of those people. So, this is the theological context that Luke is, is, is reflecting on, right? He sees that Elizabeth and Mary shouldn't be having babies. He sees that Zechariah was a skeptic of the promises of God. And he goes, oh, I've heard that story before. And so the question becomes, why did he include it? Like, what does that mean for us as we look at these verses in in Luke chapter 1? How does the fact that the stories of Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac, let me say that again, how does the fact that the stories of Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac are reflected in the story of Elizabeth, Zechariah, John, Mary, and Jesus? And how does that give us certainty in our faith? I think it's really important that the story doesn't start with Jesus. I think it's really important that it's much bigger and grander. I was having, I'm going to ad-lib here, I was having a conversation with a student a few weeks ago, and she's a skeptic. And she said, she was, she was pointing out how the Bible's kind of circular, and how you know, we root our knowledge in the scripture, but it comes back to the scripture. <clears throat> and I was talking to my supervisor. Um, this was at summer conference, and, and he was speaking for us. And he said, yeah, yeah. What Christians believe is circular. What most people believe is circular. He said, but our circle is so much bigger and so much more beautiful. You see, if it started with Jesus, you could almost argue that it was kind of made up. Oh, we need a solution to the problems that plague us and the sin in our hearts. And so, oh, here's this Jesus guy. It doesn't start there. It actually doesn't even start with Abraham and Sarah. It starts with creation. There's a complex history of God working in and through people to restore them to relationship with him. All of the Old Testament, it's actually snapshots and vignettes of what it will look like when the Messiah shows up. All of Jesus, I'm sorry, all of God interacting with the people in the Old Testament, from Adam and Eve, Abraham and Sarah, all the way through the nation of Israel as a whole. They're snapshots for us so that we can pick it up and go, oh, I recognize the Messiah because I see this picture. So, the snapshots of the Messiah show up in the story of Abraham and Sarah. God overcomes Sarah's inability to have a child. And she gives birth to a son who delivers a promise. When we look at that snapshot, we go, oh, I see that in Jesus. There's an Old Testament sacrificial system. It's this visceral picture of what the Messiah will do through his sacrifice, through his death and resurrection. 
When they, when they sacrifice sheep and goats and bulls and doves, <laughs> these are pictures of Jesus. And we can pick up that picture and go, oh, I recognize Jesus as the Messiah because he matches this picture from the Old Testament. When Israel is disobedient to God and is overrun by the Babylonians after God saying, please, turn around. If you don't turn around, if you don't change, if you don't stop doing these things, you're going to be overrun. And one day he just goes, okay, it's time. And the Babylonians come in and they take over Israel and they spread everybody out. And yet, over 70 years, just like God promised, he calls Israel back. He reestablishes them in their promised land because it's the land he promised to them. And he establishes them again as a legitimate people in that land. Once again, we pick up that picture and we go, oh, this is what Jesus is doing with me, with you. I recognize the Messiah. Because of the picture I see in the Old Testament. So the fact that we see God once again overcoming the natural processes of pregnancy and delivery of a child is an immediate indicator, this is the guy we're waiting for. This is the guy. And if you didn't have that complex history that goes all the way back to Genesis, you might be going, is this the guy? Jesus is the guy. The second thing we should take note of is that God works through broken people. This is important. N.T. Wright spends time in his commentary pointing out that Elizabeth was likely the object of scorn because of her inability to have a child. She was a, she was a social outcast. He also pointed out that Zechariah was no great hero of faith when he questions the angel's angel about the possibility of his wife having a baby. He was a serious skeptic. And Mary, I mean, to become pregnant before you're married, she could have been stoned. She was also a social outcast. Wright explains... The story is about much more than Zechariah's joy at having a son at last, or Elizabeth's exaltation in being freed from the scorn of the mothers in the village. It is about the great fulfillment of God's promises and purposes. What Wright is saying here is that the passage isn't ultimately about people getting what they want. <laughs> the passage is about God continuing to do what God does, redeem a people for himself. To himself. God is restoring a relationship with his people by forgiving sin. God is working through broken, sinful people to bring about the, this aspect of redemption. Like he doesn't circumvent us, he actually works through us. This is encouraging. But there's more. Wright continues to comment, but the needs Hopes and fears of ordinary people are not forgotten in the larger story precisely because of who's, who Israel's God is. The God of lavish, self-giving love. 
as Luke will tell us so many ways throughout the gospel. God isn't so busy making a people for himself that he forgets that those people hurt. God isn't so busy making a people for himself that he forgets that sin impacts us in painful, difficult ways. God doesn't forget that there's burden and pain and brokenness in our lives. What he does, not always, but he definitely does do, is that he heals and soothes the pain of our lives in the process of accomplishing his redemption. There's going to be pain and struggle. There's going to be pain and struggle our whole lives. And some of those, those things are never going to be fixed before Jesus comes back. And yet some of those things, we're going to get to watch him as he's redeeming us, as he's sanctifying us and making us more like Jesus, we're going to watch some of those things heal. We're going to watch open, bleeding wounds close. We're going to watch broken relationships be restored. We're going to watch sin that we just can't seem to beat get beaten. This is what God does. He works through us, to accomplish the redemption, but he works in us to make us more like Jesus and to heal the things that hurt. Lastly, people with faith in Jesus are the covenant people of God. In Galatians 3, verse 7, the Apostle Paul says, this is great because it's so concise, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons and daughters of Abraham. In case you were thinking, Trip, great, great, this covenant thing, and it goes to the descendants of Abraham, but I'm not Jewish. Uh, most of us, I imagine, are not. I'm not. So how do you become a recipient of the covenant if you aren't somehow genetically connected to Abraham. Luke isn't a Jew, and yet he seems to be super excited about what's going on. He's writing about the coming of Jesus, and he ties it to the Old Testament as something that is just something to be celebrated, like this is, this is important to him. He must know that his connection to God's redemptive work doesn't come through biology, it comes through faith. The benefits of God's covenant with Abraham have been fleshed out over the years through biblical re revelation. We're not talking about property in the Middle East. Some geopolitical boundary that, that we're going to have forever. We're talking about the land is the new heavens and the new earth. That when Jesus returns, he's going to restore this place to look like the Garden of Eden. And it's yours. It's your promised land. You're going to get to live there. You're going to get to be there. The people, as we've discovered, are not just those who are biologically connected to Abraham. They're all who will express faith in Jesus. And so we look around, and we have brothers and sisters here in this room. We have all throughout 
Central Maryland work, worshiping this morning as uh, people in our presbytery, people outside of our denomination, people around the world that are going to be living in this land with us. And the blessing is not simply being kind to the people next door, but rather the expressing to the world the hope that we have in Jesus. The snapshot of these three promises in the Old Testament become so much grander. The circle becomes so much bigger and more beautiful, doesn't it? You see, this section of Luke's gospel is a little like the deep thoughts by Jack Handy. There's truth here that we all want to hear. We all want to hear that there's hope for our fear and our shame and our shortcomings and our brokenness. But the twist is this hope doesn't come through working harder or looking better or higher performance or being kinder, even though that's our instinct, right? i got to fix this in me. What do I need to do? Our hope is rooted to a promise of a relationship that goes back thousands of years. And Luke tells us, this is it, guys. This is the fulfillment. This is the moment when Jesus is born. This is the promise we've been waiting for. This is the child that we've wanted all this time. Isaac was great. Jesus is the guy. And so we root our hope. We root our faith, not just in Jesus, but in this gigantic story that God's been telling. Let's pray. Lord God, we need to hear these things. We get so caught up in the minutia of our lives, of the little things that we do, the little things that we say, the things that are said to us, the, the bills that need to be paid, the, the errands that need to be run, the sleep and rest we need to get. You're saying, those are great, but look at the big picture. Isaac is a snapshot of Jesus. Root your hope in Jesus. Root your identity in Jesus. Put your faith in this child. Lord, thank you for turning our faces toward you, for being at work in our hearts. Thank you for being at work in our faith. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.